Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. It's been no secret that our upcoming season finale is the next chapter in the Troughton story. And so today... We bring you all of Professor Troughton's stories thus far in a series we're calling Convinced Disbeliever. Now, gather around the fire, pour yourself some tea, and we'll begin. Our first story is where it all started. Leave a light on for me. I accept that there may be things far grander and more incomprehensible than I can possibly imagine. Indeed, whenever I have gazed up at the Milky Way, there has always been a feeling in my chest of something greater than my mortal life. Equally, however, when I gaze into the dark of an empty hallway or across a field in the dead of night, I sense something looking back. The very idea of the supernatural is nonsensical, it's devoid of sensible meaning, and yet complex, seemingly impossible things are by their very nature difficult to explain. I myself struggle to explain what I have witnessed. Perhaps I should elaborate. The matter began, as far as I'm concerned, quite mundanely. I had just finished interviewing that year's applications to Warwick and found myself in the midst of an academic wanderlust. It had been some years since my last publication, and despite my short time lecturing at Warwick, I feared I was beginning to stagnate. As luck would have it, or indeed something quite opposite to luck, an email presented itself to me having been forwarded from colleague to colleague over the course of some weeks. There was, it seemed, a potentially significant discovery in Northumberland, and the finder, a local priest, was keen to pass the relic on for study. Two days later, I found myself on a train heading north. It was November, but I remember as I reached Northumberland the sun was still visible well into the evening. With rolling hills as far as the eye could see, the sun lingered and illuminated my journey for as long as it could. Eventually the land was plunged into darkness, and with Uber seemingly unheard of this far north, I was forced to take a bus to my hotel in the coastal town of Anworth. Granted, I arrived late in the evening, but the town initially struck me as unremarkable, offering little but a selection of shops surrounded by a stream and headed off with an aging medieval castle. I soon learnt that Anworth was to many a place to retire, while for others it was simply a place to forget. Opposite the castle stood my destination, the Cherry Tree Hotel, 
Three stars on TripAdvisor, mind you, but it was quite literally the only hotel within walking distance. The red brickwork that peaked under the crawling ivy betrayed the building's age, and inside the 1970s was still very much present despite what contemporary fashions would impose upon it. As I awaited service, I saw that merely eight of the twenty rooms were booked, including my own. And, oh yes, upon closer inspection, I saw that they'd somehow managed to misspell Troughton. The next morning, I succumbed to hunger, and perhaps an element of laziness, and attended the hotel's restaurant for breakfast. The numbers present did not match those in the guest book, so I was left to assume that the cherry tree was the social hub of the local community. Indeed, when I eventually found a vacant table, I couldn't help but tune into the conversations around me. And it soon became apparent that everyone knew everybody. I seemed to draw a few looks, and offered a polite smile here and there. I wasn't the only passing visitor, but I was the only one eating alone. Or perhaps it was the tweed that drew their gaze. Before long, I accidentally met the eyes of the hotel manager, who promptly came striding over, armed with a jug of luminous orange juice. Morning, Squire. Ah, uh, good morning. And a fine one it is. Freshen your juice? Ah, uh, no, I'm okay. Ah, thanks. Something wrong with your breakfast? I'm sorry? Your breakfast. You've been shuffling that sausage around for five minutes now. Oh, <laughs> oh it, it's, it's fine, thank you. It's just not what I'm used to. What? I don't do a full English in um, Coventry, was it? Uh, yes, uh, but no, I, I normally have something a, a lot lighter back home. <laughs> Any nice plans for today, then? Stroll on the beach? No. Wait, let me guess. You're here for the castle. Uh, sadly, no. As a matter of fact, I'm to meet a Father Gorman a little later. I'll be... Father Gorman? Yes, Father Simon Gorman. He does live in Anworth, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he certainly does. He doesn't show his face a lot these days, though. Hasn't been so much as a Sunday service in weeks. Hmm, curious. He seemed rather eager to speak to someone from the university. <sighs> the young fool reckons he's found old Edgar's lantern, doesn't he? I beg your pardon? Come on, why else would you be meeting him? Ah. <sighs> I've been invited to inspect and collect an object of potential academic interest. I know little more than that, and honestly, I don't care to speculate further. Of course, Doctor. I meant nothing by it. <sighs> Professor. And please excuse me, I must gather my things. Lovely breakfast, really was. Less than twelve hours in Anworth, and I was already at the centre of local gossip. The manager had been strongly in favour of this room, although lacking a sea view as I'd requested, it did overlook the castle which currently blocked the low winter sun from blinding me entirely. Nothing else in the room was remarkable save for a rather tall cupboard and an armchair by the foot of the bed. The cleaner had apparently already been in while I was attending to breakfast as my satchel hung neatly on the bedpost ready for collection. Poking out from it, however, was something new. Placed rather conspicuously was an old, tattered book, cloth-bound but with half the spine missing and the rest withered down to mere threads. I had to open the thing to discover the title. On Ghosts and Ghouls of the Northeast. <laughs> Good Lord, what rubbish. Uh, the Poppy Girl, 
Jimmy Allen, a grey lady. Oh, how original. Uh, oh. Old Edgar's lantern. Surely this was no coincidence. With some condescension, I disregarded the book, keen to meet with the priest without all this nonsense to cloud my mind. I did half look for the manager on my way out, for the book could have easily been mistaken for my own by the cleaner, but I was convinced there was no literature in the room when I checked in. <sighs> At night I had failed to spot the daffodils that surrounded the base of the castle, same of the hanging flower baskets from the lampposts. Most shops had a bowl of water on the step for passing dogs, and I confess to feeling somewhat charmed by the place. And although I couldn't see the ocean for the buildings, I could certainly smell the salt in the air and could feel my lungs cleanse of city smog. Despite my slow amble, I still had half an hour or so before my appointment, but decided to head to the church nonetheless. I pushed the wooden gate against the gravel and walked up the path to the church door. Surrounded by tombstones, I noted the salty air has long since eroded the majority of decoration and text of each stone. In fact, those most exposed were completely eroded, so the patterns on them strongly resembled the acoustic foam you see in recording studios. Arriving at the wooden door, I knocked just in case Father Gorman was as early as I. Nothing. Perhaps it was the gaze of passing villagers that spurred me, for I was keen to get inside the church, and so I tried the door. To my surprise, it was unlocked and revealed a dark and empty church hall within. Hello? Hello? As I entered, the cold swept over me like a blanket in the breeze. In the thin beams of light that pierced the old stained-glass window, I saw dust dance in the new draught. The church pews were also rather caked in the stuff, leaving me certain that nobody had set foot in here for some time. Behind the somewhat humble altar across the hall, I spotted a door locked with a padlock. At that moment, I saw a shadow behind me in the reflections of my spectacles, and I quickly turned around to spot the figure of a man in the doorway. Oh, uh, Father Gorman, is it? Uh, pleased to meet you. Yes, that's me. You must be Professor Troughton. Uh, that I am. Please, you must forgive me for intruding. Think nothing of it. As we shook hands, Gorman offered me a smile that was completely lacking in warmth. Were it not for lips curling on his unshaven face, I would declare the man completely without expression. Shall we get to the task at hand? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. This way, please. So, is the church closed these days? Hmm? Oh, yes. More or less. I, I haven't been really feeling up to it lately. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, it, it's nothing, really. I'll, I'll live. After you. Your office is looking a little bare, Father. Why all the empty bookshelves? I, uh, I prefer to work from home these days. I had someone bring most of me things. I suppose helping your parish doesn't require you to be rooted to the church? No. Well, at least it's suddenly warmer in here.
The priest sat behind a desk, facing slightly away from me and toward a crucifix hanging above the door. He locked his hands together as if to keep them occupied, but a bouncing leg betrayed his otherwise stoic disposition. I couldn't help but notice a large chest on the other side of the room. It looked new, and it too was sealed with a padlock. Is that... Yes, that's it. I suppose one can't be too careful. Especially when one leaves the church doors unlocked. Yes, it, it must have slipped my mind. But and with this quiet, you know, a uh, few troublemakers, as it were. He produced a single key from inside his pocket. I took it and immediately squatted by the chest. I was keen to assess the item and take my leave, if truth be told. I admit to feeling uncomfortable this far north, but Gorman's behaviour, combined with my own impatience, was beginning to make me downright irritable. I donned a pair of vinyl gloves and got to the task at hand. Inside lay a single item, somewhat large and bound in a thick fabric, which turned out to be an old picnic blanket. Hardly the proper protection for a supposed antique. I bit my tongue and decided not to chastise the man who was shifting uncomfortably behind me. Inside, of course, was the lantern. I immediately recognised it as originating in the late 14th century, and while I have seen a fair few before, this one was rather unique. Fascinating. Typical for the era, it was thin and rather lengthy. Carved into the brass, however, was an unusual collection of chevron stripes. Well, it's older than you think, Father. Easily early 15th century, perhaps even the 14th. Quite a remarkable design, actually. You say uh, that workmen came across this in the foundations of the church? Father Gorman? Oh, uh, sorry, yes. Uh, under the foundations. Uh, they found it while we attempted to strengthen the dilapidated wall at the east side. Look, must you do that here? Excuse me? Uh, the lantern. You've seen it now. I, I thought you'd take it away to Coventry. You'll forgive a, a man's professional curiosity, surely. I can't make my preliminary observations so quickly now, can I? Did you reach any theories yourself? Oh, I'm not one for such things. Nonsense. Your email implied some amateur research. I was able to open the latch without risk of damage, only to find a fresh wick within clearly burnt at the edge. The Philistine had actually lighted the damn thing. Whenever I venture outside the realm of academia, it is not simply enough to get on and do my job. I find I have to devote a significant proportion of my time teaching people to respect history and the relics we come across. Surely even a religious man would know better than to light a flame inside an ancient lantern? Nevertheless, you knew enough to rethread the wick. It's as you implied, Professor. Curiosity, it gets the better of all of us. I... I suppose you did the right thing contacting someone anyway. How did it look then in all its glory? I'm sorry, Professor. I'm afraid we may have to stop for the day. I'm afraid I'm suddenly feeling unwell. Hmm... I suppose you do look pale. You can leave me here, I'll be some time yet. There were some protests, but I was able to convince Gorman to allow me to stay for the remainder of the day. He charged me with the keys, and I made sure to lock the church doors after he left, lest I be disturbed. Now left to my own devices, I spent the next few hours meticulously cleaning the lantern, 
removing rust and debris and so forth. I documented my progress and would have sent photographs back to my colleagues were it not for the lack of a decent phone signal. Still, I had quite the prize to return with. The mere existence of the lantern was not remarkable in itself, however the geometric patterns were completely fascinating. It was coming to half five and the short day had long since gone. The lantern now looked pristine, and it suddenly dawned on me exactly how long I'd been attending to it. I'd gathered as much information as I could without proper resources, and now even my own stomach was conspiring against me. Still, there was one aspect I hadn't fully investigated. I was compelled to see the lantern in use, to see how the warped chevron patterns would cast. It was an almost primal instinct, or perhaps even a childish one, but I soon found myself searching the drawers of the desk until I found a box of matches. I stood back and surveyed the room around me. The flame burned with an intensity I hadn't expected. The light somehow overcame the confines of the casing and filled every corner of the room. The walls bathed in light and I dare say it was now brighter than it had been with the main light on. My awe was short-lived, however. I felt a sudden draft at the back of my neck and the flame began to flicker. Suddenly, I could smell the sea. The draft became an outright gust, causing the flame to dance within its casing. What on earth? lantern suddenly extinguished, and then there was silence. It was so absolute and so terrible I could not dare to move. It were as if a single movement might bring the dreadful sounds back. For the longest of moments all I could hear was my own heartbeat. And then I heard someone outside, in the churchyard. The presence of another abruptly brought me back to reality. Gone was my irrational fear, and returned was my confidence and rationality. No townsperson had any business lurking around the church at this time of night. Children, no doubt. I stepped out of the office and into the hall, listening. I'm sorry, the church is closed. No idea why you're calling at this hour anyway. As I took the position of authority, a great peace fell upon me. 
I was myself once again, and more importantly, I felt in control. And so I put the strange events behind me. My rational mind quickly explained them away as a mix of hunger, fatigue, and the infectious nervousness of Gorman. I was a scholar. I did not entertain such nonsense. I did not believe in the supernatural. I ensured everything was locked and felt the reassuring weight as my now full satchel patted against my leg. By this point, I was positively famished, although the food at the hotel left something to be desired. The only alternative was evidently the Anworth Arms, but alas, far too boisterous for my liking. I was alone on the streets, and were it not for the pub, I would have felt entirely isolated. And yet there was some noise around me. I half turned discreetly, but saw no sign of anyone. There it was again. Ever more aware of the cold, I nonetheless stopped this time and scrutinized the area intensely. Nothing. I was about to continue my way when I was finally able to locate the source as pebbles skipped down the sloping path toward me. Aha! Something was disturbing the debris on the rooftops. I walked backward onto the road to see what was causing such a thing. The street lamps were rather dim, and it was in fact the moonlight that allowed me to scan the rooftops. I could certainly see some form up there, too large to be a bird. When I squinted my eyes, I could almost see it. Whatever that thing was, it scrabbled onto the next rooftop further up the hill, and then it stopped. I took a few steps in order to follow it. Suddenly it grew in height, becoming quite erect and allowing its form to clearly be seen. Someone was on the roof. I now locked eyes on a hulking figure standing on the rooftop. With the moonlight behind its back, I was unable to make out any features, but I could tell that whoever it was, was looking right at me. The event was so unusual, so strange, that I felt paralyzed. I admit that I was gripped with fear. I, I could not stand to be in its gaze, nor could I bear to look away. I worried that if it were to move toward me, I may call out in a primal panic. It was the figure that moved first, as it slipped behind a chimney. As it disappeared, so too did my fear. My sense, strength, and rationale returned with each slowing beat of my heart. My head cleared and I was embarrassed, no, angry, that this figure, this man, had robbed me of my dignity. I walked quickly and lightly, my eyes ever watching the rooftops for signs of the prowler. The moonlight served me well, the glare on the rooftops was uninterrupted, be it by bird or by intruder. Nonetheless, I knew they must still be within earshot. Just what the hell do you think you're doing? Nothing to say, eh? I fixed my eyes on the rooftop on which he most logically could be, and I realized it was only a stone's throw away from the cherry tree. I was about to call again when something stopped me. This did not feel right in the slightest, and I most certainly did not wish to pass under that building, but indeed it was necessary. Instead, I turned a sharp corner away from the offending presence and made my way down to the stream, intending to follow it around to the other side of the castle and to my temporary abode. 
Thankfully, even my own footsteps were cushioned by the grass. Nonetheless, I still find myself glancing behind from time to time, almost expecting to see someone giving chase. What could they want, exactly? There was a moment of panic as I looked ahead and caught sight of someone approaching, only to relax as I spotted the Staffordshire Bull Terrier beside them. I offered a nervous smile as we passed, and my loop of the castle was almost complete. I arrived at the cherry tree, a little shaken. Upon closing the door behind me, I exhaled as if I'd been holding my breath the entire walk home. I made conversation with the manager, who kindly prepared me something to eat I'd apparently missed dinner and he granted me access to the hotel's Wi-Fi. As I sat in the empty restaurant, I composed an email to a colleague. In it, I described the bizarre antics of the day and attached a photo of the lantern. I glanced down at my satchel, the large shape of the lantern bulging at the seams. It pushed loose items held in the side pockets, and I noticed the book I had earlier discarded. Ah, yes. On Ghosts and Ghouls of the Northeast. Highbrow reading indeed. I'm ashamed to admit that the curiosity got the better of me. Soon I found the entry on Old Edgar's Lantern, which was listed as a Northumberland legend specific to Anworth. The book's language was abysmal, and it took three paragraphs simply to survive the preamble. However, it did hold some merit. It told the story of a lighthouse keeper in the 1700s named, plainly, Old Edgar. He was said to live a simple life, diligent in his duties and frequenter of the local establishments. It tells of a storm that batters the lighthouse so much that it is partially destroyed. Edgar, who can see a ship battling its way to the shore, panics and runs outside in a vain attempt to warn them. Without the lighthouse, the ship runs off course and heads straight for the rocks. Armed with his lantern, Edgar swings it above him in hysterical panic, trying to get their attention. Of course, his efforts were fruitless and the ship crashed, killing all aboard. He was apparently never seen again, but some days later his lantern was found washed up on the shore. It is said that he who lights the lantern would call to the dead beneath the wreckage. Surely not. I left the book on the table. Surely the cleaner would want her scaremongering propaganda back. I settled my bill with the manager and mentioned the book's appearance, though he decided to play coy. The cleaner isn't in the habit of leaving books around, sir. Are you sure it isn't one of yours? I don't spend my time reading such things. <laughs> Except today. Quite. You could have paid your bill upon checkout, you know. In fact, I thought you'd already gone upstairs. Could have sworn I heard you in your room just now. No, I've been savouring every last bite after your kindness. I'm off to bed now, though. Would you please ensure I'm not disturbed before ten? You will not be disturbed, Mr. Troughton. Yes, thank you. To be fair to him, there was an abundance of footsteps upstairs. I even had to squeeze past a gentleman wrapped in a towel as he returned from the shared bathroom. The first thing I noticed about my room was that it was freezing. I quickly dashed to the window and closed it, clearly having left it open that morning. The air had a dampness to it, and the slightest hint of an odour. 
Were it not for my fatigue, I may have marched downstairs and requested a different room. For now, though, it was enough to take off my shoes and lie on the bed. Victorian doctors allegedly used to prescribe extended trips to the seaside for asthmatics and insomniacs. Indeed, I felt similar medicinal effects as I slipped into a slight snore before even falling completely asleep. I roused myself long enough to undress and get into bed. Quickly, I slipped into a deep and dreamless sleep. I awoke suddenly, whether it had been thirty minutes or three hours, I hadn't the slightest clue. I reached for my spectacles and noted immediately that the cupboard was wide open. And that's when I saw them. Two feet at the foot of the bed. Someone was sitting in the chair. Who is that? What are you doing in, in here? I waited for what felt like an eternity for an answer. Even with the moonlight shining across the foot of the bed, my eyes could not penetrate the darkness. All I could make out was the pair of boots, soggy, no, drenched in water. I could taste the salt, even. Thank you. I wasn't sure if those words had been spoken or whether they were created by the fevered state of my mind. As the thing leaned forward, its face, or, or what remained of it, entered the light. The skin was bloated, waterlogged even, and rotted in patches. The lips were so full that it could hardly speak intelligibly. But as it did, water spilled from its mouth and splattered down to the floor. You guided me from the sea, sir. Thank you. The word fear does not convey my feelings at this moment with any justice, nor does terror. Get out. You took too long, sir. We have lain at the bottom of the bay for an age. You took too long. Get out. Get out. Get out of my room. I was powerless to stop it, though with one hand I tried to push it away while the other fought the unnatural grip. Through my own fingers I could see its face begin to twitch and grimace with eagerness. Even through its warped features I could see the malevolence and I felt darkness descend on me. Mr. Sharpton? Mr. Sharpton, are you alright? Mr. Sharpton? It's a trap and I'm coming in. <gasps> Mr. Troughton? <sighs> I was alone in the room when the manager burst in. A second or two later and he would have been too late. I'm told that I then fell unconscious and indeed my next memory is a paramedic shining a torch in my eyes. My account did not corroborate with the police's findings... My neck was without bruises, and the other guests only reported hearing my screams. 
In time, I withdrew my record of events to protect my dignity and, indeed, my reputation. I fought hard to be where I am now, and I cannot risk sounding like a child or the mad. But no one could explain why my sheets and the inside of the cupboard were drenched in seawater. And, of course, why the lantern was nowhere to be found. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Silent warnings. So, Henry comes to the throne as a very young, very arrogant man. Well, as most young men certainly are. And he came with a singular purpose. The absolute reversal of his father's foreign policies. And you must remember, this period was the most glorious soap opera of all time. The whole future of countries turning on what these huge personalities felt like when they got out of bed in the morning. And Henry wants what every red-blooded king wants, to start a fight with the French. <laughs> However, he finds himself confronted... I've got to say, Professor Troughton looks well. Namely, a structure of bribes and what, you mean for a man who is nearly strangled to death? Well, yeah, but he doesn't look bothered, does he? This, of course, was down to Henry's father, who had wanted to... Were you expecting a neck brace? No. He just seems as well as he was before the trip. More so, even. I'm pretty sure he's always okay once he's had his Earl Grey. Hey, maybe he got laid. It was I don't think he does that. Any questions relating to Tudor foreign policy and not my recent mishap? <laughs> your concern continues to warm my heart, though I wish you would direct your energies to better use. Uh, that's it for today. I will see you all tomorrow. Right, I'm just going to give him these. I still think it's weird to give him flowers. Well, it was my girlfriend's idea, if you must know. Right, well, I'll meet you outside. Uh, 
Uh, excuse me, Professor? Uh, yes? Oh, uh, yes, hello, uh, Mr... Uh, uh, Watson, isn't it? Close, Watkins. Ah, yes. And what is it I can do for you, Mr. Watkins? I just wanted to say that we're all pleased to have you back so soon. Um, some of us got you some flowers. Oh, my. Very kind. Get well soon. I do wonder how one can get well soon over an assault. But, yes, terribly kind. Thank you, Mr. Watkins. Well, I, I know it's... No, no, it's not. Honestly, thanks without end. Oh, I, I see Professor Irving waiting for you. I'll see you tomorrow, Professor. Yes, see you then, Mr. Watkins. <laughs> Get well soon. Troughton. Come on, give me a hug. Oh, um, nice to see you too, Irving. Um, yeah, thank you. How have you been? Uh, not bad, all things considered. Yes, you look well. Thank you, and, um, not to be rude, Irving, but I wish I could say the same for you. <laughs> you look tired. Oh, well, I am. Oh, been a lot on my mind, I suppose. Oh? Anything you'd like to talk about? Maybe. <sighs> Tell you what, drinks tonight. How about it? Oh, God, you're not offering to be there for me, are you? Everyone's been doing that. When did everyone get so touchy-feely? Troughton, old boy, I'm not interested in discussing what happened in Northumberland. I wanted some company tonight and thought you might too. It'd be a great excuse for me to open that cognac. The Louis the Thirteenth. That's the one. Well, then, you've twisted my arm. Of course I have. Look, I best crack on, but let's say eight o'clock. Do you remember the way? Certainly. And I'll see you then. Oh, and be careful on your way up. The weather's been relentless in my neck of the woods, and the roads are bad enough at the best of times. Yes, mother... Cheeky bastard. Perhaps I should have rearranged for a, another evening. The sun set a little too eagerly that day. I was late leaving work, but even so, I had not expected dusk so soon. The drive to Irving's was considerable, 50 minutes along country roads, and while our colleagues were baffled by his lengthy commute and refusal to move closer to the university, I understood exactly why he did it. Irving lived a solitary life, alone in his sumptuous cottage outside of Coventry, I admit it's the sort of place I'd love to end up myself. I've touched on this before, but I've always been a man who has contemplated mortality, 
My recent experience did not make that much difference, it must be said. And no, it is not an existential anxiety. I know my place in existence, and I am thankful for it. Even so, life is fragile, and I admit to gripping the steering wheel that little tighter and stealing myself as I drove along the winding country roads. The wind began to push the rain sideways, leaving the windscreen unusually clear. What little sun there was set behind and flared into the rearview mirror. I slowed down, as is the sensible thing to do in such conditions, and then something caught my eye. Good Lord, who's that on the road? What are they doing? At first I thought it a pedestrian, even in this weather, but the shape was not solid. The spray of rain onto the road seemed to coalesce and wisp into the vague silhouette of a figure. It was there, and yet it wasn't. What the hell is that? The car began to swerve, and with white knuckles I tried to pull it back under control. I took my eyes off the phenomenon for only the briefest of seconds, and when I glanced back, it held both shapeless arms above its head. It never moved from the other side of the road, and if there was intelligence behind the gesture, it was not to threaten, but to catch my attention. It seemed to cower, and I, I think it had wanted me to stop. The shape began to fall apart as each raindrop passed through, and I blinked to clear it from my sight completely as if it had been a hallucination, but I still saw the hands linger before they too dissipated. Come on, Troughton, get it together, man. What had I seen? A trick of the light? Had light passed through the rain and warped into something, my mind's eye twisted into a familiar shape? Or was it the delusion of a traumatized mind I had insisted was fully recovered? There was another option, of course, but I was not willing to entertain it. Deep breaths, hands on the wheel. As I continued along the road, I kept an eye on the rearview mirror. There was nothing. Is it? Just a tad. 
did you get here okay? Um, yes. Yes, uh, no problems. Good. Now, come through. I've got the fire on. Cup of tea? Oh, yes, please. It really is a lovely cottage, Irving. You know what, Irving? That clock, that one right there, is very loud. Oh, oh, oh. Time flies. You know, Geoffrey, this is the most relaxed I've ever seen you. You've even loosened your tie. <laughs> well, I suppose it is out of working hours. It's a hard habit to break, nonetheless. You know, in Oxford, we... <laughs> I beg your pardon? You always find a way to pepper Oxford into the conversation. Do I? Yep. Is Warwick not posh enough for you? Now, Irving, you know that's not the case. Uh, Philip. Oh, uh, of course. Y yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> Philip. You know I'm honoured to be at Warwick. I should hope so. Bloody good university is Warwick. I did my undergraduate here, actually. It's in my blood. Stay here long enough and it'll seep into yours too, like some delightful virus. <laughs> right. I'm empty. Refill our drinks, please. Another toast? Yes. Um, to Warwick. Nicely done. To Warwick. <laughs> mm. I must say, that's very fine cognac. An expensive taste, though quite worth it. Books and booze, that's all my money goes on. Oh, yes, I, I was showing off my hardbacks, wasn't I? Yes, and you had a, a lot more fiction than I anticipated. Come now, there's more to life than study. Uh, for examples, um... Uh, oh, have a gander at this beauty. Uh, um, um, a beautiful binding. Uh, the golem. I didn't see you as a reader of horror. Christ, you'd better not look at the paperback collection, then. Oh, no, no. I, I hold nothing against the genre. I, myself, once read The uh, the Haunting of Hill House, for example. Good Lord. Geoffrey reads for fun. <laughs> and gothic horror, no less. Oh, one book. <laughs> um... So, uh, how, um, how do you feel about that 
sort of stuff now. Anyway. Hmm? What stuff? Well, you know, um, spirits and ghosts. What do you mean? Well, after, um, after your, uh, your recent... Um, I haven't the foggiest idea what you're talking about. Well, hang on, you call that a top-up? Here, give me the bottle. <laughs> you're trying to get me drunk. And I'm succeeding. <laughs> oh, no. Hey, hey, careful, don't spill it. Philip, you have the most uncomfortable sofa I've ever had the displeasure to sleep on. Oh, it's far too early. Are you awake? Oh, oh! How the students do this every day? I have no clue. Oh, Philip, Philip. Uh, Philip, are you awake? Uh, do you want a cup of tea? Come in, Geoffrey. Um, sorry if I've woken you. I'm rather desperate for a cup of tea. Uh, oh, um, you're half-dressed. Uh, have you even been to bed? I tried. I couldn't. I'm glad you're up, though. Are, y are you all right? Have you been... Staring out of the window all morning? Philip? There's someone watching me. What? Come and see. Do you see him? Uh, uh, oh. Oh, yes. Just about. There's a... There's a fellow in the field. Oh, I'm almost relieved you see him. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? He's wrong, that one. <laughs> oh, um, what on earth are you on about? It's just some rambler. No, it's not. Hmm, I rather think it is. Some eccentric local with a penchant for walks at six in the morning. It's really not. Well, what makes you so sure? <sighs> um, what... He's been around for a week now. I'm hearing, I mean, I, I mean, at first I assumed as you did some oddball, but he simply appears every so often, never moving, never, never going anywhere. He's always outside, always staring at me, and I don't like it. Have you tried talking to him? After his second appearance, I shouted over, nothing aggressive. Nothing. Not a thing. The thing is, Geoffrey, I, I, I rather think I, I... I rather think he's not quite alive. I beg your pardon? I thought you of all people would understand. Why, Philip, why would I understand, hmm? 
And after what you've said about the lantern in Anworth, you, you saw something. It, we've been over this. You gave me your rehearsed explanation. Oh. Well, let's find out, shall we? What? Oh yes, let's find out. You and I, right now. Get your coat. Come on. I practically frog-marched poor Irving out the door. I had half-hoped that the Watcher in the field would not be there by the time we stepped outside, but there he remained. We didn't speak to each other as we approached. I cannot speak for Irving, but I suppose I attempted an air of authority. A pitiful attempt at intimidation, as it were. The rising sun was behind the figure, the brightness so much that it was almost blinding. Being forced to look at the ground was a blessing. Despite my apparent resolve, I did not relish confrontation. I stole glances as we approached. The dark shape of the Watcher was a black hole against the sea of light. At first he appeared as a pupil in a large, bright eye. Through some effort and squinting, I was able to see that the figure wore a large black overcoat, perhaps too formal for a country walk. At last we reached him, and I stood closer than Irving, of course. That was to be expected. I raised a hand to shield my view, and I tried to meet the fellow in the eye. However, our visitor was looking at the ground, thin, straggly hair draped over skin, seemingly too pale to be healthy. <coughs> uh, excuse me? Excuse me, sir, might we speak with you? Oh, for goodness sake, you there! Troughton, I said, excuse me. Oh, you see, Philip, just some fool who doesn't even have the decency to speak to us. Some nosy cretin making us doubt our own bloody sanity. At this point, I took a step forward, for what purpose I didn't know and still don't. But I was not able to entertain the thought further. The man, the watcher, raised its head, or at least it tried. The neck leaned back, yet the head remained forward, and I realized he had not been looking down out of choice. The neck soon leaned back enough to cause the head to limply loll backward, giving us a full view of the face. Never before had I been so reminded that the body is simply a shell of organs and bones. Irving had been convinced this man was not alive, and I had berated him. But does a living man's skin pull tightly over bone? Does a living man's jaw drop open involuntarily, and does he look at you with eyes grey and rotten? How does such a thing glare with such disdain? 
such malice? Why was there instantly such judgment passed over us? Or perhaps just one? He's gone. He must have left when we walked away. Oh, are you satisfied, Troughton? That's unfair. I told you that wasn't a bloody man. Are you convinced now, hmm? No smart-ass answer this time? Look, I accept that there are things far grander and far... Spare me your politician's answer. Philip, if you'd seen what I've seen, then you'd be equally keen to hide from the truth. I killed someone, Geoffrey. What? Last month, just before you went away, I hit someone on the drive back from work. Oh, God. Irving, was this up the hill? There's a sharp turn in the road. I, I know. I, I, I lost control last night myself on the way here. I, I, I saw something... There was some pensioner walking across the road. He, he saw me before I saw him. He looked... He looked terrified, Geoffrey. I, I couldn't stop the car in time. What, did you stop? Uh, after you hit him, I mean. <laughs> Irving, did you stop? He knows. That bloody thing knows. You don't know that. Oh, come on. You saw him. He knows. And he's making sure I don't forget it. Look, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I don't know what's beyond this life. I, I've seen things I can't explain. That much is true, but... But the simplest explanation is often the most correct one, is it not? Irving, if what you say is true, if this thing knows, perhaps if you take responsibility, it will relent. Look, it's Friday today. You have until Monday, and if you don't do something, well, I will. Oh, no. <laughs> Sleep was but a concept that weekend. Come Monday, I stood in my office on the fifth floor in the midst of an anxious fever. My phone rested heavily in my breast pocket, ever ready to make the call that would both betray my friend, but make steps to put things right. I looked to the offices across the university grounds, looking for distraction. My next lecture was but an hour away, and yet I had done little to prepare. I scanned the workplaces through the clear glass wall and saw something that stood against the modern setting. I saw the unmistakably wasted figure of the thing from outside Irving's cottage. I had scarcely been able to look back when I first saw him, but now I stared. I stared until my eyes ached and dried. 
Its head, though limp and to one side, was still able to fix on me, and in the expressionless face there was somehow a countenance, a burning sensation of anger. Whether this malevolence was aimed at me, I was unsure, but my view was suddenly obstructed for the most fleeting of seconds as something suddenly passed between us. <gasps> my God! It was Irving. He fell twelve floors from the roof, quite on purpose, I'm told. Atonement, it seems, was too much to ask of him, and I remained disappointed, to say the least. I ran down to see him and fought through the crowd. Bodies that fall from such heights are not as clean and intact as you would hope. I have yet to return to the roads leading to Irving's cottage, but I suspect that if I do, the shape that appeared in the rain will not be there again. And I doubt, I hope, that I will never see the Watcher again also. He had done his job. Let that be the end of it. Blessed be the man. Suffolk Talks! And if you're just joining us, we're continuing the second half of our debate, Diligent Discourse. And I am indeed joined in studio by two learned gentlemen. With me still are Professors Geoffrey Troughton and Sean Hill from the Universities of Warwick and Bristol, respectively. Welcome back, gentlemen. Now, Professor Troughton, you've been somewhat on the fence about the existence of ghosts, going so far in a recent article to say, and I'll quote you directly here if I may, Please. Perhaps some truths, truths that may be far grander and more incomprehensible than we can possibly imagine, are simply too revolutionary for us to fully accept. Yes. So what did you mean by that? Well, exactly what it says. The universe doesn't owe us condolence or consolation. It does not owe us a nice warm feeling inside. And yet we're all desperate for exactly that, so much so that when evidence appears to the contrary of our terrestrial understanding, we're too quick to disregard it rather than analyse it and consider the ramifications. To simply consider that we may not have known everything. Professor Hill, I see you're shaking your head there. Yeah, I've heard these sorts of arguments before. The problem that we have here, what we so often have, is that so-called evidence in question is usually simply delusional or anecdotal in nature. Right. But a delusion, by definition, is something that people believe in despite a total lack of evidence. And what I've put forward is that simply perhaps we should reconsider what we have previously disregarded. Which brings me back to my point. Look, I'm not calling anyone a liar. We all suffer from false memories. We have what appear to be memories, quite clearly in our heads, for things that didn't even actually happen. It's one of the areas of research that we're really interested in at Bristol, actually. And uh... I'm well aware of false memories, Professor. <clears throat> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure you are. 
But perhaps your objectivity has been clouded by... faith? No, I'm not talking about faith, and I think you know that, Professor. Faith is an excuse to evade the need to think, to evaluate evidence, which is the opposite of what I'm suggesting. So what exactly are you suggesting, Professor? How do we separate highly convincing hallucinations from alleged real-life events without explanation? Professor Troughton? I feel I'm being cornered on what was initially a thought exercise. A thought exercise you published in New Scientist. I'll point out there were favourable responses to that. But if you were to pin me down on this, I'd suggest a psychological evaluation of the individual or individuals reporting the sighting, followed by an Occam's razor approach to eliminating all other explanations. Then, and only then, do I feel we could begin to explore the possibility of the supernatural. But better minds than mine would need to advise on those steps. My field is history, after all. OK, so, psychological evaluation. Now we're in my field. Why is it you think most, oh, I don't know, alien abductions are reported by working-class, lonely people in low-income middle America with typically low education? Oh, that's one hell of a generalisation. I'm just talking about statistics, Professor. Besides, I'm not talking about aliens. Quite right. You're talking about ghosts. Uh, by using these words, you're seeking to undermine my argument by making it appear outlandish. Perhaps you're going to quiz me next on the Loch Ness Monster? Or the Jersey Devil? At this point, I'd like to point out that I'm not arguing for the existence of the supernatural per se. I'm simply advocating receptiveness, much like Jung before me. Fair enough. I'll return to my previous point, which was that most sightings of the supernatural or the unexplained are usually by those less balanced. <laughs> Ouch. Or, or, or those uh, under a great deal of stress. And, Professor, with the greatest respect, I understand that these new opinions of yours came soon after you suffered both a physical assault and the loss of a friend and colleague within the same year. Anything to retort, Professor Troughton? Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, look, I'm sorry, but it is relevant. I dare say I might have similar experiences after going through the same. Most of us have had experiences which have verged on hallucinations, even. You're quite right. I've long considered my experiences, and I wouldn't be so frequently risking my reputation had I not carefully considered all the factors. I understand the mind's ability to deceive, I really do. However, if something is true, no amount of wishful thinking will change it. And that's where I find myself, faced with an inconvenient truth, looking for answers like any good scholar. What do you say to that, Professor Hill? Looks like all Professor Troughton is asking us is to keep an open mind. <laughs> well, I'm all for keeping an open mind, but I don't want to keep it so open that my brain drops out. Charming. Let me put things another way. Professor, you lecture history, yes? Specialising in the Tudor period, yes. But in your wider studies, how many religions have you seen come and go? How many gods disproven, witches falsely accused? And yet amongst all that, the sighting of spirits has prevailed. Almost all cultures report sightings or belief in ghosts. 
It's even spiked in certain periods, and yes, there are many rational explanations, but among all the falsehoods and fakes could be genuine sightings. I don't know what else to tell you, Professor. I wish I had better answers for you besides anecdotal evidence or what-if scenarios. I'm probably not as entertaining a guest as the show had hoped. <laughs> Nonsense. Although listeners will be pleased to hear we have an actual medium coming onto the show next Thursday to channel the spirit right here, live in the studio. What? Good grief. That's it for today, guys. My thanks to Professors Troughton and Hill for joining me on Diligent Discourse. Um, thank you. Thanks again, guys. Real pleasure. Uh, here's our runner. He'll show you where to go. Okay. This way, please. After you. Alright, thanks. Just around the corner here. Ah. First radio show, was it? On this topic, yes. Otherwise, no. Well, it was uh, certainly interesting. Hmm, quite. Right, here we are. Thanks again. Exit is just here, the way you came in. Oh, and there's a member of the public waiting to see you, Professor Troughton. Me? Hmm. Think they have something to sign. They've been quite persistent. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Look, I apologise if I overstepped the mark in there. I didn't mean to bring that unpleasantness up. You know how debates can be. Well, yes. Well, then it's settled. Excellent. Ha <laughs> ha! Firm handshake. Right then, I'm off. Ah, 4.30. I mean, that's technically evening, is it not? Perhaps a glass of wine. Best of luck, Professor. And same to you. Safe travels. Good evening, madam. (laughs) Good evening. Indeed, indeed. Thanks for waiting, miss. Right, I'll leave you to it. I hope to have you back another time, Professor. (laughs) That'll be the day. Professor Troughton? Ah, hello. I was hoping you'd sign my book. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Roses by other names. This takes me back. I hope you haven't put yourself out in coming down. I was in the local Waterstones a few months ago. Oh, no, not at all. Um, I was just listening to the show out there, actually. I thought he was rather harsh. Oh, I'm quite used to that by now. So who am I signing this to? Underscore Spooky Doc. Hmm? Underscore Spooky... Oh, (laughs) Dr. Parkins from Twitter. (laughs) How sly. I couldn't help myself. But I thought we were meeting tomorrow. But please, do sign the book. Honestly, I love your work. The Tudor period has never been so entertaining. And... Done. Thank you very much. So why are you here? I had us down for ten in the morning. Well, I thought you'd like to see the site before we get into the nitty-gritty tomorrow. It'll be dark before long. Do you think there'll be much benefit? There's something to be said for atmosphere, and, and I don't think you'll get the alone time once you're surrounded by the other academics. Quite right. Uh, should we depart now? Yeah. Did you drive? No. Uber. Great. I can save you the fare.
So I wasn't really expecting to see the site before I had opportunity to review your notes in full. Uh, we're looking at early 18th century, aren't we? Very early. Uh, 1701, it looks like. Precise? Well, I've been able to ascertain a lot from the parish records. The remains found are almost certainly those of one Martha Good. Oh? It seems Martha and her husband uh, moved to the area from Manchester. They live not far from here, just by an old oak tree. An oak tree? That details in the records? Well, that's just it. Just as they arrived, it was noticed that a pine tree had started to grow from the trunk of the oak. Um, a tree within a tree, effectively. Hmm. Well, if that tickles your interest, you can imagine what the locals were like. Strangers come to town and a strange new tree grows? And all during a bad season for farming. They lost their shit. Oh dear. Exactly. And back then, there was a belief that witches could turn into elder trees, and never mind that this was a pine tree. It's so stupid. Anyway, the records describe a neighbour who tried to fell the tree to no avail, but as he cut into a branch, it bled. Of course it did. Tell me about it. So, because Martha was allegedly seen the next day with a bandaged arm, it was all enough to have the poor woman executed for witchcraft. Poor woman. Oh, she was one of scores of women put to death around here at the time. Hardly surprising. Why have justice when you have superstitious conjecture? Exactly. So the official line is that you're here to help us identify burial rituals and the like. Burial rituals? I thought her remains were found at the roots of a tree. The tree, yes. They buried her under the oak pine tree. I suppose they found it fitting somehow. Twisted logic, really. Have you come across anything like this in your findings? A tree burials? Not to my knowledge, though this isn't the sort of insight of mine you're after now, is it? No, but that's no secret. Your reputation precedes you, Professor. Some of the students have figured out why you've taken an interest. But you invited me. An invitation that didn't avoid scrutiny, I'm sorry to say. There were more local experts, I could have asked, some within the university even. But my department, my rules. Besides, you were the natural choice to ask after... Well, after it all went down. Yes. Have you seen or heard anything since? No, not for a while. And you think I will? I'll be entirely honest. I don't want you to see anything. <laughs> but that's not what you said online. We're here. <sighs> well? I want you to disprove it. But you know as well as I... I know, I know, but... If there is anything close to an expert, it's you... It's hard to argue against what you've seen, even if you were arguing against yourself on the radio. I'm still not entirely sure myself. I just know I'm unsatisfied by my current level of understanding. Well, I believe in you. I mean... <laughs> Christ, if it were me, I'd be screaming that ghosts were real from the rooftops. I'm sure the university would enjoy that. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. That's why we're here now, really... Off the record. You know, it can be very dangerous for me to be off the record on this topic. I didn't drag you to Suffolk for trepidation, Professor. 
Geoffrey, please. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, then you get to call me Roslyn. Roslyn, it is. This is it. So this is the churchyard. This is it. Oh, it's truly autumn now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it'll be dark before you know it. Right then, let's take a look. You know, for all my apprehension, this is almost exciting. Yeah? Well, here we are, two academics pushing the limits of our understanding. Pioneers, as it were. <laughs> yeah, that's a very grand way to describe two fools ghost hunting in a graveyard. <laughs> very good. Oh. oh, this is the tree. Strangely beautiful, isn't it? That's an understatement. I've never seen anything like it. The oak must be at least 15 metres on its own, and, and the pine must be, what, another 12? Your guess is as good as mine. A tree within a tree. I, I can't believe it's still here. Uh, oh. Oh, and here we have the excavations. And uh, the remains were here, within the roots? It was like the roots had wrapped around them, uh, trapped them, even. Mm. They were quite difficult to remove without damage. The night of your sighting, this was after the bones were moved? The next evening. Cursed be he who moves my bones. Sorry? I beg your pardon. Uh, Shakespeare's grave. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. But why would she want to stay in an unmarked grave under a tree? If I may speculate openly. Please. I dare say you're looking for logic where there isn't any. Or rather, if there is an intelligence at work, you're looking for benevolence when there could only be malevolence. I'm not sure I follow. Perhaps after the initial great injustice was committed, there was simply anger. Anger seeking to lash out. And now the remains have been disturbed. But we're jumping ahead. It's, it's getting dark. I expect you want us to stay and keep watch, as it were? Yeah. And I trust you brought a flask... Uh, no. Um, but there's a Costa Coffee not far from here. W want me to nip in the car and, and get us something? That would be lovely. Uh, tea? Um, no. Uh, hot chocolate. Mm hmm daring. W will you be okay on your own? Of course. See you soon. Won't be long.
You know, there comes a point when a man realises he has simply stood in the dark waiting for something that in all likelihood may not occur. How's your hot chocolate? It's hot. And chocolatey. Mm, I think the chocolate's congealed in the bottom of mine. So, shall we discuss your sighting? I'd rather not. It's just a fox. I know that. I'm just on edge, that's all. See? I'm okay. It's fine. You should have seen some of the states I've been in this year. That bad? I still struggle, as a matter of fact. I'm sorry. Thank you. The university covers my therapy, actually, though I do feel intensely patronised at times. Well, uh, let's move on, shall we? So, your sighting. Let's... let's treat this as exposure therapy, shall we? Well... I didn't see anything as such. I... I heard something. What did you hear? I heard the trees. I heard the branches bend and creak like they were about to snap, but there was no wind. I know how this sounds, but it was like they were alive. The whole area came alive and, and seemed to to bear down on me. This was after the rest of the team had gone home? That's right. After the discovery, we set up, removed the bones, and I was last on the scene. And that's when everything came alive. This is why I was vague online. It's so bloody hard to describe. There was no ghost as such, no singular presence, just the trees watching. And then they started to re reach... Okay, what is that? Likely the fox or a cat, Rosalind. There are reasonable explanations. You know this. You're right. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, don't be. Please. Fear is good. Fear keeps us alert. You heard on the radio earlier, we have to remove the obvious before we look at any other explanations. Process of elimination. I'm ready to believe as much as you do, but all I hear right now is the natural sounds of the environment. Okay. I mean... Do you feel watched right now? Do you? Yes. Ever since the first moment, especially now, near these fucking trees. I wouldn't even be here if you weren't with me. You don't feel it. I haven't stopped feeling watched in some time. And I'm trying ever so hard not to let my imagination get the better of me right now. Let's continue, because we both know you won't be able to speak this freely in front of your peers tomorrow. Okay. So, you said this presence followed you? Something physical? In a... in a manner of speaking. There's a tree by my house. For the last few nights... calm nights, I hasten to add. It's been knocking on my bedroom window. And no, it doesn't usually do this. It's too far from the window. This is literally the first time it's done this? Yes. Tell me you heard that. I did. Then going by your logic, I'd say somebody is with us. So it would seem. Hello? 
Hello? Um, kids out for a drink, maybe? Something like that. Is someone there? Let me use the torch function on my phone. There we are. It's bright enough. Keep scanning. Shit! What? There! I don't see anything. I saw something right there. Move your light back. No, no, further left, there. I don't see anything. N I know, but there was someone there. Man? Woman? I couldn't tell. Are you quite sure? Yes. <sighs> no, I, I don't know. I haven't slept in days, okay? I'm entirely open to the possibility that you just saw someone. Either our imaginations are getting the better of us, or, well, if something is here with us, then it has a choice. Come out, show itself, or keep hiding. Is this how it was when you were first here? More or less. Is this what you want? Fear? Because you're in luck? <laughs> we are frightened. Trouton. If you want somebody to listen, we can listen, we can help. But so far all you've succeeded in is scaring us. And what does that accomplish? Trouton. What? The tree. It's moved. Moved? How exactly? It's closer. Closer? The branches. They're nearly touching you, and I swear they were six feet away a second Actually, ago. I think you might be right. Oh, fuck. We should go. Fine. Yes. Okay. <sighs> Do you see anything? No, but there's the car. Come on. Wait. I'm trying to see if they're moving. I have to know. Get in. Just another few seconds. Okay. How are you now? I'm tired, Geoffrey. I can imagine. I suppose you can. I'm just so fucking tired. Did you see anything at the end? I don't know. The wind had picked up, they were moving for certain, but unnaturally, I couldn't say. It's possible we both overreacted. It's also possible we... we didn't. No further forward. I've been on edge like this for days now. I think either way, you need some sleep. That, we agree on. I can't bear to sleep in my own house, though. That fucking tree. Why don't you come and stay at the hotel with me? Mmm, <laughs> Professor. Not like that. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I could get a second room That's or... That's kind, but no. I couldn't make you do that. Perhaps I should come to yours. I sleep on your couch, perhaps. Tell you what. If you stay in the house until I fall asleep... I'll reimburse you for the Uber tomorrow. You don't want to stay on my couch, believe me, and the door's on a latch, so... Okay, consider it done.
It's not far. So... You saw the tree move behind me? Well, I, I saw it was closer after I turned away. Okay. At one point I thought I saw a few of them move. Not swaying in the breeze, but actually reach out. But I can't be certain if it was just the pine oak tree, or a few of them, or even all of them. Look, can we not talk about it? Leave it till tomorrow. I understand what it's like to be doubted. I know. I just have to be sure, to be absolutely, to be completely, utterly sure. Otherwise I'll be chasing every sighting of orbs at British heritage sites, or having to sit in at, ugh, bawly rectory, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Professor Troughton, ghost hunter. <sighs> Please. But you heard how Professor Hill spoke to me, Rosalind. I'm only ever going to encounter more of that in my career. Soon, Warwick would become too embarrassed and I could find my position untenable. I need a solid sighting that can't be explained away with an allusion to my mental health. That's why I reached out. I know. I don't mean to make you feel belittled. If you saw how many invitations I've received since I started writing about this... Uh, but I came to you. Because I respected your work, your mind, your reputation. And because you were desperate to feature on Suffolk Talks. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Christ. I hope I can sleep tonight. I hope so. I'm treating you, Geoffrey. This candle cost me 14 pounds. 14 pounds? Wait till you smell it, though. Give it a second. Okay, that is rather nice. Uh, what is that, bergamot? No, um, pomegranate noir, apparently. <laughs> okay. You sure about staying a while? I am. Let myself out once you're sound asleep. Actually, how will I know? I don't exactly want to peek. <laughs> Believe me, you'll know. <laughs> right. Look, I don't mean to be rude, but you really do look tired, Roslyn. I know. If you don't mind, I'm going to go up. I suspect I may even have a clearer head in the morning. Who knows? There's Netflix on the TV if you fancy it. Oh, no thanks. I have some notes to record. Okay. Can I get you another cup of tea or anything? Roslyn, please go to bed. All right, that's me told. I really appreciate this, Geoffrey. I feel a lot better with you here. What dark days we live in. A single woman feeling better for a man she's met on the internet lurking downstairs in the dark. To be fair, I have read both your books. Ah, well, there we have it. Basically family. <laughs> Good night, Geoffrey. Good night. Right then. <clears throat> test, test. Eleven benevolent elephants. <clears throat> test, test. Eleven benevolent okay. elephants. 
I've always made the distinction that the difference between the work I have been exploring and blind faith is that mine is evidence-based, anecdotal though it may be. Today it has proven to be inconclusive. There has been no solid evidence, the details of the day I'll get into shortly, but for now I want to record my initial feelings to document how easily emotions, imagination, suggestion can influence a rational mind and review once my mind is clear. I'm also a survivor of trauma, which would very well compromise the neutrality of this research, as has been suggested by others as recently as today. Note, decline all further offers from Suffolk Talks. So is this all simply confirmation bias? Yet when the trauma itself is the gateway, the catalyst of this research, then I do feel assured. Uh, I feel as conflicted as Hamlet, and yet we all know exactly how his indecision affected him. Uh, And yet, despite the rational explanations I've offered, despite Parkin's admission that she is dangerously sleep-deprived, despite everything, I now stand with eyes fixed on trees across the road, dancing in the wind. Is it the wind? Or is it something else? Tomorrow I get to review the site during the day. Perhaps the movement of the trees will seem less sinister in the light of day and the presence of others. What is that? Roslyn? Roslyn, is everything okay? Must be fast asleep, poor woman. I suppose I'll give it 15 minutes or so and call my lift. Where was I? Jesus! Rosalind? I'm coming! Rosalind! Good lord, Rosalind, where the hell? Sarita. She, she's been pulled out, oh Christ! I'm coming! Roslyn! Oh. I've got you. I've got you. You're okay. You're just, just some cuts and bruises. The, the tree. What? It, it reached in. T- took me. The tree? I have to move you, okay? I, I don't know if you've broken anything, but you have to hold on to me, okay? Okay. One, two, three. Three. <laughs> <laughs> Suffolk Talks! It's 1.30 in the afternoon, the sun is shining, and most of Suffolk is recovering from last night's freak storm. Phone in and tell us your experiences. 
Is your car damaged? Cat didn't come home? We want to hear. Okay, we're speaking to Alan about what he saw last night. Alan? Yeah, my neighbour was rushed into hospital last night. Nice girl, works at the university. But, yeah, the wind was so bad, the tree between our houses smashed into our window. She must have got caught in the branches, poor girl, and was thrown outside. Wow. I know. I saw the whole thing while I was brushing my teeth. Luckily, she had a gentleman visitor staying over who rushed out immediately while I called an ambulance. They both just come back, actually. Looks like she has a broken leg. I said to my wife that the tree was too big, but did she listen like hell she did? Just like when I told her there was a storm coming, did she listen? Go on, get forward to you joining us on Friday the 20th for Troughton's next story, Settle Thy Studies. Greetings adventurers, today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.